Well, I just want to take a brief uh, time up here and introduce you all to our brother Thabiti Anyabuile. Um, we've met several years ago. I don't even remember how, but he's one of these guys that once you meet him, you just kind of feel like you've always known him. Um, I've been so encouraged by the way that he's preached, by the way that he's pastored, by the way that he's cared for multiple churches, but I have been particularly encouraged and inspired here in these past few years. Um, the BD was pastoring in the Cayman Islands with his family for the past 10 years, right? Um, well, the Lord laid uh, on his heart uh, to move him and his family to Southeast D.C. to plant a church um, there. And uh, it, people don't move from the islands to the hood of D.C. Um, uh, as a step of career advancement. But uh, three years ago, uh, really six weeks before our church planted, y'all were the ones that kind of put your foot in the water first and said, hey, it's fine in here. And so uh, we've been greatly challenged and encouraged by the way that you've led your family and your church, and we're honored to have our brother here today. So why don't you welcome uh, Thabiti as he prepares to preach God's word. Thank you, What's good, Cornerstone? Happy birthday. Praise the Lord. Three years of God's grace and fresh mercy, making you a family, keeping you together, seeing you through lows and lifting you to highs, and three years of people hearing the gospel and coming to believe, and even this morning we'll celebrate baptism. There's a lot of grace on your life. I know it uh, because I, I know a number of things. I know that from time to time, there are folks from my church who come here for a weekend or so and worship with you, and they come back, and every one of them come back, they were like, yo, it's dope, son. That's how young people talk. It's dope, son. I'm, I'm the greatest dude in the church, but I'm son, right? It's dope, son. The music was dope. The word was dope. And the warmth of the people, the fellowship of the people was dope. And you know how people tell you, they give you a good report, but it's more than a good report. It's also a suggestion. It's like, we need to do it like they doing it, bro, you know. And so your faith and your faithfulness and your praise of our Savior has gone out, not only to West End, but has gone out to Southeast D.C. and much further afield. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with you. I can't communicate to you what a, what a privilege it is to be with you, to be worshiping with you and seeking our Savior together. And I'm thrilled to be here with you because, honestly, with no sense of flattery or hyperbole or anything of that sort... I can't think of anybody that I would rather sit under and care for my soul where I'm looking for a church than your pastors. John O., Rich, Moe, faithful men of God. Love the Lord Jesus, love the gospel, love the word, and they love you. I know that by the way they talk of you, their, their hopes for you, their, their prayers for you, their, their joy in in, in serving together with you and calling you family. So when they say that, they're not just saying that because they're now public in front of the church, or that's the kind of stuff that pastors are supposed to say. That's what they say when we meet privately as pastors. I meet with a lot of pastors, and I have two categories for them. You ready? <laughs> folks who love their people and folks who are struggling with their people. The folks who love their people they tell me about particular persons in the congregation and the work of the Spirit in their life and their hopes and desires for them and their burdens and their weeping for them. That's what I get from your pastors. A glad brokenheartedness to be able to serve Christ and to care for you. And so I'm convinced that the Lord has given you, and I'm sure you know this already, faithful pastors and their faithful families to care for you. And so it's a great honor for me to come and to partner with them uh, in the word this morning and to open God's word this morning. Is that all right? Now, I do have one complaint. I came expecting to eat. And John O. ain't got enough faith to have a barbecue now. I mean, you know. 
it's a delight to be with you. So let me, let me offer a word of prayer, and we'll turn our attention to God's word. Father, we have been singing your praises and lifting our voices up to you, desiring to lift up, Lord, pleasing praise through Christ, desiring to exalt your name and to exult in your presence, to seek our happiness and our joy in fellowship with you and with each other. And so, Lord, we have prayed to you and we have sang to you, and now, Lord, we ask for you to speak to us. We don't want to crowd our relationship with you with just our voice. We want to be still and know that you're God. We want to be still and hear your voice. We cry out, speak, O Lord, your servants, listen. And so speak to us this morning from your inspired word. Holy Spirit, open hearts and minds, give us understanding, convict and instruct and motivate and sanctify and use us, O Lord. For the praise of your great name, encourage and build up your church, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. We celebrated our third anniversary about a month ago, and I was telling John O, I had some sister come to me and kind of ask the question, we going to celebrate anniversary every year as if like third is not a special year, right? Like first year made sense, and maybe fifth year and tenth year, I'm like, no, we celebrate every year. Because we ain't blew the thing up yet, it ain't, it ain't fell down yet. That's a, that's a whole lot of mercy and grace for us to celebrate every year. And so the third is as special as the first, which is as special as the fourth and the eighth and the tenth, if the Lord tarries and gives us years. Really, Christ's people should be celebrating air day. Every week when we gather together, there's to be a kind of celebration. There's a kind of rejoicing because God has kept us still and, and God has provided for us still and, and God is with us still. He is, he is keeping the word that he made to us that he would never leave us nor forsake us. And your assembling together as God's people is the manifestation, the tangible evidence of that promise keeping God, keeping his word. And so we gather this morning to celebrate and to think about what the Lord might have for us as a, a young church. You're three years old, praise the Lord. And I absolutely agree with Rich with what he said on the panel because I feel it in my own church. We're in this sort of strange stage where on the one hand, we've been meeting together long enough that it can feel like routine. And you can kind of slide back into comfort. But on the other hand, you're young enough that still things start to go a little bit off the rails or a little bit wonky or something of that sort. And so, and so you're, you're recognizing that, listen, we're still needing to breed vision into this new thing and have everybody lay hold to this vision even as we give God praise for some sense of routine and order. And so we're trying not to get stuck in complacency but also to lean forward into God's calling. And that's a lot like the very first church. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. We're going to spend our time there this morning in the first 11 verses of Acts. I thought it appropriate that as we celebrate our anniversary as a, as a three-year-old church, and you hear me say our anniversary because I don't know if you knew this or not, I'm an honorary member. Y'all family, all right? So as we celebrate our anniversary this morning, I thought it would be appropriate to go back to the very first church and to look at that church, which in many ways... You guys are a lot like, alike. That church, when we're in Acts chapter 1, consists of 120 persons. A little bit smaller than you. And that church in Acts chapter 1 is looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. Just like you're looking forward to God keeping some promises and working in your life. And that church is trying to get its feet on the ground in Jerusalem in this new mission that God has given them, just like Cornerstone in West End or Anacostia River Church in Washington, D.C. And there are three things I want us to observe about this church, this young church. This young church finds itself, number one, often waiting. Often waiting. That's what we see in verses 1 to 5. This young church finds itself, number two, Tempted to wander. Tempted to wander. W-O-N-D-E-R. Verses 6 to 8. And this young church finds itself 
reminded to witness. Reminded to witness, verses 9 to 11. So look with me in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, as I read to verse 11. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven. Suddenly, two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. The first thing we want to see in this text in verses 1 to 5 is that a young church will often find itself waiting. Verses 1 to 3 is an introduction to the book of Acts. You see that verse 8, verse 1, excuse me, begins with, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus was, Historically, his name means beloved of God or lover of God. The reference there to the first book is a reference to the gospel of Luke. It's Luke who writes that gospel and writes this narrative. And and Acts here is the second volume in Luke's two-part story. Notice there in the first book, verse 1, he wrote about, uh, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That suggests that this book, the book of Acts, deals with what Jesus continues to do and to teach through his church. And so Acts is picking up where Luke left off. Notice there in verse 2, the day when he was taken up, after he had been given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. If you're looking at these first few verses here, you, you get a sense of the historicity of Christianity. Notice there, he starts with what Jesus began to do and teach. That's his earthly ministry. In verse 2, he talks about the day when Jesus was taken up. That's a reference to his crucifixion on the cross. And then you see in verse 3, after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. That's his resurrection. Are you getting here the, the reference to all the historical facts of the gospel? That the Son of God came into the world in human flesh. And lived approximately 33 years of, of human life. Fully God and fully man was without sin, and taught people about the kingdom of God and demonstrated the truthfulness of his message through the the performance of miracles and extraordinary acts of, of power. And then at the appointed time, in the place of sinners, in the place of you and me, this same son of God went to the cross of Calvary. And he was crucified there like a common criminal. But the main thing that was happening there was not that he was sentenced together with thieves and robbers. The main thing that was happening there was that the the father himself was pouring out his judgment upon the son who was taking our place. That's the suffering. Not merely the physical crucifixion, but the wrath of God being poured out on the son of God for the whole world. And three days later, he rose from the grave, proving that the Father accepted his sacrifice, 
and proving that the Father had made a way to defeat death and to made a way to atone for sin and made a way for sinners now to be risen together with Christ and to enjoy together with Christ new and abundant and eternal life, a life not merely of forgiveness, a life of righteousness and adoption as children into the family of God and a life of immense and eternal blessing with God. Now, if you're here this morning and you're thinking about the claims of Christianity, or maybe you're a little bit skeptical, can I point out just a a two-word phrase in verse 3? There where Luke writes, convincing proof. In other words, when we talk about these claims, we're not talking about something men made up. We're talking about something etched in the annals of history. We're talking about something that actually happened. So the first Christians are not some monks who went up on a mountain and began to sort of dream up a religion. The first Christians are fishermen and crooked tax collectors and and others who were uh, just sort of from ordinary walks of life who had no power, no influence, weren't monks, were everyday people who saw the Son of God who heard his teaching, who as uh, Mo read a moment ago in 1 John chapter 1, handled the word of life, who ate with and slept with and walked with and served with the Son of God, and who were eyewitnesses to his crucifixion, and though they didn't believe it, were stunned by his resurrection. What we present to you this morning is not fancy, It's not mythology. It's not imagination. What we present to you is real truth. We would not call you to believe a myth. We would not call you to believe some man's fantasy. We would not call you into make-believe, for that would do your soul no good. But beloved, think about this if you're thinking about Christianity. If Jesus rose from the grave, and he did, and men and women saw it, And they did. And if men and women sat down their eyewitness testimony and it was preserved for us for centuries, and it is, doesn't that change everything? That a man rose from the grave and in rising from the grave demonstrates that there is forgiveness with God And that there is a life not just in this life on this little ball of clay, but there is a kingdom and an eternal life that will not end, that is lived with God, where there is pleasure and satisfaction forevermore. Doesn't that change everything? And if you're thinking about following Jesus, but you're not yet sure, do you have a better offer? Even if you were to think about this motivated entirely by self-interest, personal self-interest, isn't the best offer to you to follow Jesus? To give this life for an eternal one? To trade your sins for his righteousness? So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, we would ask you to consider these facts. And we would ask you to give yourself over to them, to repent of sin and trust in Jesus and follow him as your Lord and your God because faith in Jesus is never disappointed. Trust in the Lord your God and be saved. And so we are talking here about a a faith that grows up out of the dirt, grows up out of history grows up out of real events with real people that have reached all the way down to us. But it's a faith now that calls us oftentimes to waiting. Notice verse 3. Verse 3 ends with a reference to Jesus teaching the disciples about the kingdom of God. So we're not surprised then at verse 4 where it begins with an order. We may be surprised in verse 4 where we get this order from Jesus to not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father. How many of you know that some of the promises require us to wait? You can imagine the eagerness of the disciples. I mean, think about it. They've they've seen Jesus crucified. 
just about 45 days before that. And then three days later, they've seen the resurrected Christ. And for 40 days, he's been appearing and and continuing to teach and sometimes doing miracles. and, And they have beheld him resurrected with the scars and doing things like passing through doors and coming into their prayer meetings. They're seeing all this marvelous stuff, and now he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. You know, the natural thing is, let's ride. Let's, let's, let's get at it. But Jesus now puts him in part. Go to Jerusalem and wait. And how many of you know sometimes the most difficult act of faith is waiting? Nothing kills us like waiting. <laughs> we seem to have to do it all the time, don't we? I mean, right now, some of us are waiting for a husband or a wife. Then we get the husband and wife and we discover we got to wait for them to get dressed or wait for them to come home. <laughs> the waiting don't stop, man. <laughs> Some of us this week got to go to the DMV. You pack a lunch and two books to read. <laughs> we wait at the doctor's office. We, we wait in the line at the grocery store. When vacation comes and we go to the amusement park and we pay them $600 to get in, we wait. Long lines. Now here's the thing, beloved. From a spiritual perspective, we understand that waiting is not the same thing as resting, is it? It takes a lot of effort to wait well. It takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of focus. It takes a lot of sanctification and, and dying to self. So if we're waiting as a church cornerstone, there's nothing wrong with us. From from the time of the apostles, the church has had to wait for tremendous things, tremendous promises. You're, You're waiting on a building. Don't get discouraged. Nothing strange has happened to you as you've had to wait for the Lord to provide a permanent home. You're waiting for revival in the West End. Don't stop praying. Don't stop fasting. Don't stop sharing the gospel as you wait for the Lord to pour out his spirit in in an increased measure. God grows our faith and shapes our discipleship sometimes by calling us to wait. Wait is not the enemy of your faith. Wait very often is how you strengthen your faith. Notice, Jesus puts them in part. Verse 4 and 5, there's something they need that they don't have yet. Notice their second part of verse 4. He refers to the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days' time. The promise of the Father is the same as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't let that phrase, baptism with or in the Holy Spirit, throw you off. In our day, when we hear that, we Our minds almost always go to things like spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and his tongues for the day and the Pentecostals say yes and the Charismatics say there's some other stuff too and and the Reformed folk are like, we don't believe in the Holy Spirit. I mean, you know, so folks start, that's a joke, folks start, mostly, but folks start, folks start debating really about secondary matters. But if if we do that, we'll miss something profoundly wonderful. What they waited for in the first century church, we already had. They were waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has already come and is here. And that phrase, baptized with or baptized in the Holy Spirit, at its most basic and fundamental level, means that we have been immersed, that's what baptism means, or dipped, uh, Not in water only, which we will celebrate in a moment, but the very sort of medium or the the, the sort of atmosphere, if you will, or the substance, if you will, that we as Christians have been baptized into is nothing less than God's spirit himself. Beloved, cornerstone is washed in the Spirit of God, is bathed in the Spirit of God, is immersed in 
God himself by his spirit. You're not waiting on that. Beloved, that is your everyday reality. And therein lies the challenge. Because if you go on to read Acts and you see these extraordinary things, we're so tempted to think, oh, if we were spirit-filled, then all these extraordinary things would be happening. But, beloved, God gives himself to you so that you might have everyday communion with him. He means for us to enjoy him and all that he is every day in the ordinary. As you wash clothes or dishes, change a baby's diaper as you drive to work in Atlanta traffic. Yes, the Holy Spirit's there too. (laughs) In the workplace, at school, when we gather, this idea of baptism in the Holy Spirit most fundamentally is about our sharing in and with the Holy Spirit, communing with him, which is every Christian's inheritance. That phrase is used in some surprising ways. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. There we hear Paul talking about Israel being baptized into Moses. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 4. Paul writes there, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What's he referring there to? He's referring to the Exodus, isn't he? And all were baptized into Moses. In the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now that text deserves a sermon all its own. But what I want you to see from this text is how that notion of baptism includes with it this idea of sharing together. They shared with Moses in everything that God did. From the cloud that led them by day to the pillar of fire that led them by night to the parting of the sea and walking through the Red Sea on dry ground to eating the manna that God gave from heaven to drinking the water that God would make to gush from a rock. Paul says, now, all of that is Christ, but what we want to see is they all shared in that experience of God's work together. That's what it meant for them to be baptized into Moses. Galatians says we have been baptized into Christ. The way in which we have been baptized into Christ is through the gift, the promise of the Holy Spirit. So now we share, as Israel did in the Exodus, we share in all of the accomplishments and the riches and the glory and the power and the salvation that Christ has purchased for us on Calvary. Beloved, you need never worry about whether or not God is with you. You've been baptized into God. You're always with him. He's always with you. You are united to him through faith in Christ and joined and sealed together in Christ by the Spirit. So, you live and move and have your being in God. You are the work of God's Spirit, Cornerstone. You share in every spiritual blessing the Spirit wishes to provide for you. You walk by the Spirit and you keep in step with the Spirit. You are, despite what some hyper-Pentecostal might say, you are filled with the Spirit of God. If God did nothing else for us than to give us himself through the Spirit, then he's already done everything for us in that one gift. The promise is yours. You have it. Enjoy it. Never think that God is not here and not working. Never think that the work of God here is small. Do not despise the, the day of small beginnings. You are the most unique work in the universe. A Christian is an exquisite Christian uh, creature. Fully human but lived in by God. Nothing better than that, church. And unlike the apostles, you didn't have to wait for it. You received the Spirit when you were first converted, and you were joined to Christ's church in the fellowship of the Spirit from that moment. 
There are other things we have to wait for, but not the fullness of God. The young church finds itself often waiting, but know that God is in you and working. Which brings us to our second point. The young church finds itself tempted to wonder. Tempted to wonder. You see that in verses 68, 6 to 8. One of the most natural things, beloved, one of the most natural results of waiting is wondering, isn't it? I mean, the moment we have to wait for something, we start to, we start to wonder about it, don't we? You know, uh, think about uh, taking a road trip with your grandkids or your, or your kids' little kids. They're old enough to talk, but they don't, they're not old enough to have a good perception of time. So we're going to grandma's house. It's a five-hour drive. Back out the driveway. From the back seat, you hear, we there yet? <laughs> are we there yet? Just wondering, right? When are we going to get there? How much longer? Remember one of the first trips I took with my family from the Cayman Islands back to the States to visit my mom. She lives in North Carolina. We fly into Charlotte, get a rental car, jump in the rental car. My little boy's about three years old. This is the first time he's done a little road trip in the States. And Charlotte's about a 45-minute drive from my hometown. We finally get out on 85 North, and my son is in the back seat, and he says, uh, Dad, what's that? I said, what are you talking about? He says, that thing. I said, I don't know. Drive a little bit more. He said, there it is again. What's that? I said, I, I don't know, son. About the fifth time now, he says, we're going under it. And I look up, and it's a bridge. The boy's never seen a bridge. Right? <laughs> there are no bridges in, Cayman, in the Cayman Islands, right? So this began a, a week of discovery for him, from bridges to squirrels, right? I can't... <laughs> came home one day, my mom, my mom has a storm door in the back door, and he's standing at the storm door, like hands glued to the door, eyes wide with terror, just frozen in the door. I opened the storm door, he was still standing there, just like this, right? And as I walked by, I heard him mutter, it's going to eat me. And I saw my wife, Christy, I said, what, what's he talking about? He said, squirrels, he's scared of squirrels. It's like, like the boy can pet iguanas, but squirrels trip him out, right? So we, we're in this car ride, and, and we're driving up the road, and it's just a 45-minute drive, but there are no 45-minute drives in the Cayman Islands. And every five minutes, are we there yet? Are we there yet? How long is it going to be? What's it going to be like when we get there? And we are all like so many children in the back seat, waiting on God's promises. What's it going to be like? Are we there yet? We begin to wander. And it's that waiting that prompts us to wander. And so in verse 3 again, Jesus had taught them. The last thing he taught them was about the kingdom of God coming. Uh, and then you see there in verse 6, the natural question that the disciples ask. Will you restore the kingdom to Israel now? Are we there yet? Is the kingdom here? And even as they asked that question, they, they showed something that's true of all of us, really, that there's some things we understand and some things we don't quite get. So it's clear to them that, that God's Messiah would have a kingdom and would bring that kingdom and it would mean the, the restoration of Israel. But it wasn't clear to them what kind of kingdom that would be. They were expecting a, a political kingdom. They were expecting a, a worldly kingdom. But Jesus had taught in the Gospels, my kingdom is not of this world. He taught in the gospel that his kingdom spreads like yeast through a, a batch of dough. That it's like a little mustard seed that's smallest among the seeds. But when it grows and sprouts out, it, it, it turns into this huge bush that even the, the birds can nest in. And so there's this mystery about the kingdom and, and, how it, and how it grows that the disciples have not yet quite comprehended. And beloved, can I tell you today, the church still hasn't quite comprehended it. One of the things I pray for my church and pray for you, and one of the things I trust will be the case, given the men the Lord has given you to pastor, is that you will not chase fads in order to manufacture church growth. You won't turn the baptismal into a fire truck so all the little kids will want to go get wet. You know, you, you won't reduce gospel preaching to manipulative songs and unending appeals to people that just walk the aisle. You know, you, you won't sort of begin to shave off the sharp parts of the gospel, the difficult doctrines like hell and judgment and the necessity of repentance and submission to Christ, but that you would be faithful in those things knowing that, yeah, we can gather a crowd, but that's not the same thing as gathering a church. 
Not every crowd is a Christian church, beloved. And sometimes we are tempted because we love worldly, visible success to compromise just a little bit so that we can get a few more nickels and noses in the seat. It's not how you do it, beloved. That's certainly not how Jesus preached and taught. That's not how John the Baptist preached and taught. I don't necessarily recommend this, but John the Baptist began his sermons with, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come. Curious thing, the people kept coming to John. And Jesus himself would say, you, you wicked and adulterous generation. He'd say, all day long I stretch my wings out to you like a, a chick stretches out her wings to her hands to gather her, but you were not willing. And Jesus had hard things to say sometimes. And, and look at what Jesus has done. He has filled the world with his people. Not by cutting corners, but by being what your pastors, you heard them say a moment ago, faithful. Faithful to the truth that changes the world. We're so tempted to want things right now and to even manufacture things so that we get a sense that things are happening. Things are jumping. We're really growing. The Spirit's really there. The Spirit's always been here. And the things that Christ has wanted to happen have always been happening, even if we can't see it. Sometimes Jesus does stuff behind our backs. Because if we could see it, we'd be puffed up. And sometimes he's working beneath the soil because that's where the best rooting happens. And before long, it springs up and it bears great and so Jesus needs to adjust their question here in verses 7 and 8. Notice how he responds. He responds a little bit like my mom and dad when I was a little boy. Sometimes they'd leave the house and run an errand. I'd be like, where y'all going? Mom would be like, ain't none of your business. <laughs> and sometimes my dad would say something cryptic like, I'm going to see a man about a dog. <laughs> so when y'all coming back? You know, <laughs> we got three dogs already. I mean... <laughs> And so Jesus adjusts their thinking. He says here, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Beloved, some things are not good for us to know. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden, eating from the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When God had said, you don't want that knowledge. Stay away from that tree. That's my command to you. And, and transgressing the word of God, they went for a knowledge that they weren't supposed to have. And with that knowledge, ruined the entire world. We need a kind of epistemological humility. We need to humble ourselves beneath God's word and obey the limits of, of what we're meant to know. And not try to look into things we're not supposed to know. The day and time of his coming. Instead, we're meant to lay our hands on the things that God has told us. The writer in Deuteronomy tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that he's told us belong to us and our children. And Jesus redirects them from worrying about and trying to peer into things that they should not know to sort of anchoring them in the promises of God in verse 8. Verse 8 isn't so much a command as it is a promise, really. Look there. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, many people have pointed out that the book of Acts really follows that pattern. It goes from Jerusalem and then it spreads out to Judea and Samaria and then it ends up in the ends of the earth in Rome by the end of the book. But what's in this are two promises for God's people. Power and witness. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes. And those things go together. The filling or the baptism of the Holy Spirit with power to witness. And so I encourage you to take this afternoon, perhaps, and just to read through the book of Acts and take note of how many times you find a phrase like filled with the Holy Spirit or baptized in the Holy Spirit and how many times immediately after is not necessarily, though sometimes is the case, supernatural miracles and wonders, but how many times following right on for that is they spoke with boldness. 
ordinary thing, which is really quite extraordinary, is how God works in us by his spirit to speak with boldness for his name. If you are shy about evangelism, you're shy about witnessing, remember the words in the gospel where Jesus says to his disciples at one point, don't worry about what you'll say. I will give you words. The Father will give you words. He gives us those words by his spirit. We, we just want to pray as Paul does in Ephesians 6, 19, that, that we would open our mouths and speak boldly as we ought to. If the Apostle Paul could ask the church to pray for him to speak with that kind of boldness, isn't that part of then the partnership we should have as a church? Praying for each other and encourage each other to, to speak with boldness as the Spirit gives utterance. That's why you have the gift of the Spirit in part. And so we want to be a congregation that's not caught up in wondering about things that we cannot know. But a congregation that's caught up in trusting the promises of God that we can know. We know he has given us power. And we know he will make us witnesses. Even if he has to go to extraordinary lengths. So the word there that's translated witnesses is the word from which we now get our word martyr. Someone who dies for the faith. Now that wasn't always the, the meaning of the word, the, the association with the word. In Acts chapter 1, it means just what it says, witnesses, someone who testifies. But God so often put his people in positions to testify where their lives would be endangered that the word began to take on that connotation. And the meaning began to shift so that now when we think of witness or we think of martyr, that those, martyrdom, those things go together. And what we see in that providentially is not that the apostles said, hey, you know, Apostle John, Apostle Rich, Apostle Mo, let's get together and let's plan a fancy evangelism strategy. And then we'll teach the people all the evangelistic strategy, all this ins and outs, and then we'll get them to go out and do that. Actually, when you read the book of Acts, it's like God took the church like a snow globe and shook it up and scattered the church. He used persecution, imprisonment, hardship. And by those means, which can be so painful and so unpleasant, God was also spreading the message and growing the church. So when I listen to Mo's testimony, Rich talking to him about moving to the West End, he's like, man, I, I can't even park my car in the West End. You know, It's amazing how God uses things to get people where he wants to be. And he might be doing the same thing in your heart. So in southeast D.C., the part of the city that I'm from, it's, it's a little bit like the Jericho Road. Nobody wants to drive over that part of the bridge and come into the neighborhood. And you can meet people sometimes and say, hey, where you live? I said, well, I'm over in southeast. And they're, ah. You made it out. Are you going back? Don't go back. And we say to our folks all the time, listen, we, we have a conviction that we cannot reach a community that we do not live in. We can't phone it in. We can't commute it in. We, we have to have increasingly a living, abiding presence on the block. As a neighbor, loving the neighbor, being loved by the neighbor, and, and using neighborly opportunities to tell them about Jesus. That gets much easier when you're not driving in from Alexandria, Virginia, but you're driving home every day to a block in the neighborhood. And, and we've had folks who struggle with that. They're like, ah, oh, I don't know, Doc. I don't feel called to that. <laughs> like, give it a minute. That, that uneasy feeling you have that maybe you ought to think about it, but that you kind of tap down. And, and that, that sense, that questioning sense of, you know, we drive through there and see what the houses look like. And, and then you go and you tell mom and dad or you tell your coworkers, they'd be like, no, oh, man, you don't need to go over there. You need to go to Buckhead. Knowing that if you go to Buckhead, you ain't going to be witnessing to nobody. You're going to drive right into your garage, into the house, never see your neighbors, right? And then we start negotiating with God. If you give me that house in Buckhead, I'll use it as a place of ministry. But your whole church live in West End, right? All those may be so many nudges from the Holy Spirit getting you to where you need to be, getting you perhaps into the West End getting you rooted here and your, your social life here and, and your pattern of service more and more in the neighborhood. 
God has a way of getting his people the way he wants them to be. Even if it involves martyrdom. And it always involves taking up your cross, dying daily, and following him. And this is what we see with the church here. They weren't meant to know everything. They were meant to repent for ever trying to know everything. Omniscience belongs to God. What they were meant to do was to trust God, to trust his promises, that he would give them power and that he would make them witnesses and they would testify to him and by their testimony, he would use them to grow a worldwide movement. And beloved, he has. It's why you're a Christian today. It's why Cornerstone Church exists today. That promise Jesus made in Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. You are the living embodiment of that promise kept by our Lord. Which brings us to our final thing. The young church finds itself also reminded to witness. Verse 9 tells us an amazing thing. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, the fancy theological word for these three verses here is the ascension. Jesus ascended into heaven. But don't get fancy right now. Try to use a little sanctified imagination. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. You're standing in Jerusalem with Jesus. You're over on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is talking with you about the kingdom of God. And he promises you that that the the promise that the Father has made is going to come in a couple of days. And the text says, as he was saying these things, he started to rise. Now you stand in there, I don't know if you've seen this, I've seen sort of street magicians sometimes do a little levitation trick. It's scary, man. They they come up about, you know, six inches to a foot, and I'm just like, that's the works of the devil, man. You know... (laughs) I ain't messing with it, right? But I've seen him sort of levitating people, bug out, whoa, ah! But now, imagine now, you're standing there in the Mount of Olives now, ain't no jetpacks, ain't, ain't, no, ain't no technology like that. You ain't never seen a man float. And this man don't hover six inches, but he moves up to a foot, and then one foot becomes two, and two become four, and he's just ascending all the way up until the clouds envelop him and take him out of sight. And they standing there like that. And Peter like, y'all see that? <laughs> and Philip like, where he go? And Thomas like, I can't believe it. <laughs> and, and they standing there like that. The text says they standing there just like this. Mouth my, my wide open. And then two men appear beside them. Verse 10. And these men are angels. And maybe they don't even notice the angels. But the angels speak in verse 11 to reorient them. The same way the angels speak at the resurrection to reorient the women. The women ran to the tomb and looked in the tomb and were standing there weeping because the body was gone. And the angel asked her, says, why are you with him? Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is risen. Go tell the brothers. And here they're standing there looking up into the sky, you know, gobsmacked, just in awe. And, and the angels say in verse 11, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. They perceive that with a rhetorical question. Why are you standing here looking into heaven? And the implication of it is, Stop gawking at the clouds. He's coming back. Go do what he told you to do. Go do the work of witnessing and building the church. And that's what you see in the next several sections of Acts. First of all, they go back around verse 12 and they appoint another apostle to take Judas's place. And then they're gathered there praying when the Holy Spirit falls on them in Acts chapter 2 and Peter preaches that stunning sermon in Acts 2 and thousands are saved and the rest of the book is all about God's people being about God's business. Working while it's day because night is coming when no man can work. I imagine that they remembered many of the parables that Jesus had taught them when he was on earth. Like the parables of the, of the ten bridesmaids. Five were wise. They had their lamps full of oil and their wick trimmed, waiting on the bridegroom's return. Five were foolish, had no oil. 
And when the bridegroom came at a time that they weren't ready, they were caught unprepared and shut out of the feast. Or, or the parable of the ten talents. He gave one ten, another five, and another one. And the foolish servant took his one talent and buried it, saying, I know my master's a hard man. He reaps where he has not sown. But the one with ten and one with five took the master's money, invested it, got a return on it, and those are the ones who were commended when the master came back. I imagine they had some sense that Christ is coming again in the same glory with which he left. We live now between the resurrection and the second coming. And in this gap, in this period between his rising from the grave and his rising to heaven and coming again, he has left us this charge to go into all the world and to make disciples of every nation, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything that Christ has commanded. And he's left us this promise. I am with you even until the end of the age. A sitting church is a disobedient church. A stationary church is an unfaithful church. A real church is a moving thing, an active thing, a faithful community carrying the good news wherever it can be taken. There's a lesson in this text for us in verses 9 to 11. I might put it this way. In your spiritual life, don't chase experiences. It's amazing how many Christians of every generation is tempted to chase spiritual experience after spiritual experience. And they put their spiritual experience above everything else. But Christians are tempted to put final authority in what they have seen and what they have done. But that's not the way Christianity works. Christianity puts final authority in the word of God. So on that day, the apostle Peter was there with, with everyone else. And Peter had been an eyewitness to the Lord's entire earthly ministry. He'd seen the miracles. He had seen the crucifixion. He'd seen the resurrection. He'd seen the transfiguration. He had now seen the ascension. And it's Peter who tells us that our experiences are not to be trusted as our authority. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. The apostle writes there, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and a voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Now some of us as Christians, if that had happened to us, that's all we ever tell anybody all the time. People be so tired of seeing it. I tell you about that time I was on the mountain. <laughs> I heard that voice when Jesus got baptized. You know I was there, right? John, tell you about that time I seen Jesus transfigured. We would be trying to live on that experience. That'd be our claim to fame. We'd be name dropping and stuff. No, 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 no. Nathan wasn't there. Nathan wasn't there. It was me and James and John. We were there. The mother wasn't there. You know. But notice now what Peter says in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. You see what Peter's doing there? He says, I want your faith, I want your wisdom, I want your life to be resting on this sure foundation. That this word would guide you, not, not someone's mere interpretation, not someone's sort of uh, making sense out of their experience. Let the word direct you. Return to the word where we're given clear instruction from our Lord. Go make disciples. Build your trust on this. So this means we don't have to get back to some mystical or magical experience. Maybe that first year of Cornerstone Church was a lot like our first years of church where everything was bright and new 
And everybody seemed to be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. People showed up early to set up and, and serve the church. And people stayed late to tear down and serve the church. But after a few months, people started coming later and later. We found ourselves rushing to get ready later and later. People start jetting earlier and earlier. And not long after, people start talking about the good old days. We're 15 months old and we got a good old days. And soon you could sometimes hear people say, it's, it's not like it was. Remember that first year how we did potlucks every month? And remember when? And living by experience. The sad thing is if you live that way, it will blind you to God's present work. You'll fail to praise God for what he's currently doing. Looking backwards rather than to his coming. Here's a remarkable thing about these experiences. We, we weren't meant to live on the mountain. God sometimes gives us those mountain experiences so that we can live and endure in the valley in the plains. One night the shepherds saw the star and followed it to find the Messiah. You know what the next verse says? And they returned to their homes and their flocks. They went back to work the next day. They weren't meant to live at the manger. But that experience of the manger was meant to give them fuel to persevere in hope and trust for God. Same was Peter, true of Peter at the transfiguration. Same is true of me and you. We're meant to trust God and to be faithful in the plains and to do the work he's called us to do. To make him known from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. And what a privilege it is that God has called you, Cornerstone, into existence for just such a task. A little over three years ago, you were a thought in the minds of a handful of people. And now God, almost as if ex nihilo, has created a new family and placed it down in this community. And what was not known three years and a month ago is now a living, breathing, God-worship, spirit-filled, word-dependent family of God. Don't ever stop rejoicing. Don't ever start wondering if God is with you. He's in you, and you're in him, and he's using you. Keep going, beloved. You'll reap if you don't faint. Keep going. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the miraculous work you've done in our lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters. We're reminded that every person who turns from sin to trust in Christ is him or herself a, a walking miracle, a work of grace. Uh, you have supernaturally, Lord, plucked them from the fire and set them at your table. And we're reminded that you've not just done that in our lives personally, but you've done that in the lives of all of your people so that we share together in the promise of your spirit. And we share together in the abundant life that you've blessed us with. And we share together in the calling to be witnesses for Christ. So help us to wait when we need to wait. And help us to act when we're supposed to act. And help us to trust at all times. Keep your hand a blessing upon Cornerstone. Keep her unified. Keep her focused on the vision. Keep her energized by your spirit. Keep her far from the enemy's schemes. Bind him and his minions. And cause your gospel to go forward in the West End with great power. Renew in us faith, O oh Lord. Give us the gift of faith that we might believe and might see your omnipotent hand doing great things in the salvation of our neighbors. And we pray that you would change this neighborhood, not with just the, the outward change of redevelopment or gentrification, but with the inward renewal, the new creation that comes through faith in Christ. 
do this, O oh Lord, we pray for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.